And as I normally do when we start off the text, I'm going to ask a question. With the title of Amazing Love, my question to you this morning to get you thinking is, what is love? What, what is love? Some of you already have a rock song going through your head. That is not the definition of love. What, what is love? I heard God. What is love? Think how you use the word. How do you use the word? What do you describe? I love... I heard pizza. <laughs> love pizza. Tacos. Someone spoke up for March. Um, I love my wife. Okay, so what is love? What does that mean? Because we define it very loosely. We have our own definition. When I hear people say, I love my wife, is that the same way they love tacos? It's the same word. <laughs> I love this church. Some of the wives here are saying, I wish my husband loved me like he loves tacos. <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying. What is our definition of love? What is love? Because love usually comes out of a selfish emotion. And yet love is about giving, not getting. Love is about sacrificing, not benefiting. Love is about others and not self. Love is about serving and not being served. Love is about showing honor and not receiving honor. Love is an act of the will, not a feeling or an emotion. Did you hear that? Love is an act of the will, not a feeling or an emotion. But typically when we define love, we define it by an emotion. People will even say, I'm in love. And when they're no longer in marriage, they say, because we fell out of love. That was an emotion. But love, true, genuine love, is an act of the will. And everyone wants to experience genuine love. Everybody wants to be loved. But families, marriages, often suffer from love's enemy, which is selfishness, self-centeredness. And it brings destruction upon marriages and families. When an individual focuses on themselves and in a sense would even call it self-love, that all they care about is three people. Remember those three? Me, myself, and I. That's all they care about. It's destructive. But there is hope. Because the Bible has two words that have wonderful implication. And the two words are, but God. But God. When we look to God, we see a perfect example of love. You know, as a pastor, I've done plenty of biblical counseling where I've heard someone say, well, pastor, I don't know how to love my wife because I never have seen love before. I didn't have a father who hugged me or said I loved you. I didn't have a mother that patted me on the back and said good job. I've never experienced love. Christian, this morning, if you are here and a believer in Christ, you have definitely experienced love. You have experienced a genuine love like no other. As a matter of fact, Romans chapter 5, verses 7 and 8 say this, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But God. But God, our good, good Father, he has demonstrated genuine 
love. A love that is sacrificial. A love that's about others. A love that's esteem others. That's our God. And this morning we turn to a passage that is very familiar to a lot of us. Perhaps even a verse that many of us memorized the first verse ever was John 3.16. I remember when God drew me out of darkness for the first time I understood John 3.16 because I always saw the guy in the football field holding it up in the stands. John 3.16, I had no idea what that meant before. But once God drew me to himself and I got to read John 3.16, wow, God's love. So before we get into the text this morning, let's go ahead and pray together. Father, as we look at your amazing love this morning, God, as we look at a familiar passage for many of us this morning, we pray, O oh God, that you would reveal yourself more to us. Reveal your amazing love more and more to us. That you would be so big. That we would be in so much awe of you. Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, and to obey your truth this morning. God, may we be a people who rejoice in you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. If you have your Bibles this morning or you have your bullets with you, if you could please rise to your feet for the honoring of uh, the reading of God's written word. We're in John chapter 3 this morning. John chapter 3, we'll be starting in verse 16, and we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Verse 18. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So reads God's infallible, inerrant, and holy written word. Please be seated, church. What a marvelous passage we look at this morning. What an amazing verse to start in verse 16. Putting it back in context, as we'll look at this morning, Jesus is speaking to the religious ruler, Nicodemus. But as we do every week, it's important to put this in context of the whole book. Why are these things recorded? Why did John pen this gospel? And you should become very familiar with this by now. You know in John chapter 20, verse 31, John writes why he has recorded these things, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This morning, as we look at verses 16 through 21, we'll be looking at three points if you're taking notes this morning. The first point will be the loved in verses 16 and 17. We'll also be looking at the second point, the condemned, in verse 18. And in verses 19 through 21, we'll be looking at the judgment. So let's go ahead and get started. Point number one, the loved. Look again at, with me at this very familiar text of verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave 
His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, I don't know about you, but most of us probably have a favorite verse. And for some of you, John 3.16 may be that favorite verse. Many of the spiritual giants that have gone before us, those who we stand on their shoulders now, they've always had favorite verses. For example, John Wesley often said his favorite verse was Zechariah 3.2, which says, Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? He saw himself as something that was rescued by God. David Livingstone held dear the last words of Matthew 28, 20. Surely I am with you always to the end of the age. A comfort knowing that Christ was with him at all times. John Newton said that his favorite verse was Romans 5, 20. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. That he knew that it was no longer based upon performance, but based upon what Christ has done. Martin Luther held Romans 1, 17 as his life verse saying the righteous shall live by faith. And again, this verse we get into this morning, many hold as their life verse. John 3.16 has been referred to as the gospel in a nutshell. Martin Luther said of John 3.16, it's the gospel in miniature. Martin Luther said that. It's had profound impacts on many people. D.L. Moody being one of them said this verse brought him understanding of what the love of God truly is. This one verse was so illuminated to him that he would cry out before God, understanding the love of God. Well, with that, let's look at this verse again. For God so loved the world. Notice what it starts off with? For. It's based upon something else. It's connected with what was previously stated. Jesus talking to Nicodemus, if you were with us last week when we studied the first 15 verses, is telling him, you must be born again. And then he gives them an illustration. He points to Moses. When all the people were struck by the serpents, Moses was to make a bronze serpent and lift it up. And those who looked and trusted in that, they lived. But those who didn't, died. And now Jesus comes in and says, basically that was the foreshadowing of him going and dying and being lifted up. And those who believe and trusted and looked to him would be saved. And that is the context. And based upon that, he defines what this looks like. And he says here in verse 16, For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. Church, anything and everything that has to do with our salvation relies completely, 100%, on God's love. Say that again. Anything and everything that has to do with our salvation relies completely, 100%, on God's love. Are you a Christian here this morning? You've experienced love. You've experienced love like no other. The fact that Jesus said God's love, He said it's for the world. Well, who is He speaking to? He's speaking to Nicodemus. And what did the Jews believe? They were the chosen ones. And that the salvation should only come to them. So this is an astounding statement that he says, for God so loved the world. Not just the Jews. That means Jew and Gentile. For God so loved the world. That there is no partiality with God, whether Jew or Gentile. And this is why we have been commanded in Mark 16, 15, to go into all the world and proclaim 
the gospel to the whole creation. Because there is no partiality. You know, some of us getting a glimpse, looking at the book of Revelation, get a glimpse of what goes on there, and you can see those who are worshiping. Is it only Jews that we see in the book of Revelation that are worshiping? In Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, we read, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Why? For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. Did you notice the little two-letter word in there that we see in English? For God so loved. Jesus didn't say, for God loved the world. For God so loved the world, that little word speaks of magnitude. Speaks of the magnitude that God's love is great. God's love is great. Write that down if you're taking notes. God's love is, God's love is great. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Stop there. What kind of love? Great. The magnitude with great love that He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Remember we started in the introduction those two words, but God? That have such wonderful implications. But God, because of His great love, He has saved us. God's love is great. God's love is not only great, but God's love is infinite. We read a prayer of the Apostle Paul's in Ephesians chapter 3 where he's praying for the Ephesians. And part of the prayer, starting in verse 18, is that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Do you think we understand all that? Do you think we understand the fullness of God's love? We have a glimpse of it. For many of us, we tread on the very edges of understanding and looking to it. And church, the reality is, life has difficulties. Circumstances, situations, relationships that are challenging. But when we look up at God, there is complete, perfect love that all of us have experienced. Some of you saw in your bulletin, there was a quote by A.W. Pink. He says, there are dimensions to the breadth and length and depth and height of God's wondrous love that none can measure. It's so deep. It's truly, truly beyond us. So God's love, it's great. It's infinite. But it's also everlasting. I don't know if you've ever experienced somebody who told you they loved you. And all of a sudden, they didn't love you anymore. They abandoned you. You are deserted. God is not that kind of God. God has real love, genuine love that we defined in the introduction. And because of that, His love is everlasting. God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In Jeremiah chapter 31, end of verse 3, we read, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Church, I want to ask you this this morning. If you're a Christian this morning, have you walked perfectly before God as a Christian? I heard someone say, I wish. But the reality is, that's our desire. That's our path. 
That's our aim, is to strive to walk in complete obedience. But there are times that we fall to the left or to the right. And can you imagine a love that says, you have failed, I no longer love you. That is not love. Love is sacrificial. Love doesn't fail. And here God says, look, I have everlasting love. And because of that, I've continued my faithfulness to you. The church, even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Amen. So God's love is great. God's love is infinite. God's love is everlasting. And we read again in our text this morning, verse 16, for God so loved the world. What did he do? That he gave his only son. Notice that of a demonstration of love, he gave. He gave. The demonstration of love was by giving his son who would come not only to live in our place, but also die in our place. There's ramifications on both sides of that. That he would come and live perfectly and fulfill the law on our behalf as though we had done it. And he would also die to pay the penalty for all of our sins. We read it in the opening, in the introduction this morning, Romans 5, 7, and 8. Let's read it again. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person. I would say very seldom will someone die for a righteous person. Though perhaps even for a good person, one would dare to even die. But look at God's love. None of us stand righteous before Him. None of us were holy before Him. We had all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I want to talk about love. What does love look like? sacrificial. It's not based upon the merit of the recipient. Love is about others. We read in John chapter 15, verse 13, that greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus himself said in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Do you understand how much you are loved? Do you understand how much God loves you? Do you even get remotely close to understanding the love of God? That there's no depth or width or height that can contain it. It's beyond measure. And the limits that He would go to demonstrate His love to us. Put it in human perspective for us. Imagine somebody who continues to sin against you continues to be unloving towards you, that you would classify as the unlovable. Imagine that person. Maybe some of you know that person. And yet you would go and die in their place. You would lay down your rights, your life, for them. That is love. And now we have a holy God who's perfect, who would send His Son to die for us even while we rebelled against Him. There's no greater love. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10 say this, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. When we look at John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave 
his only son, there's no greater demonstration of love. It is the greatest example of love because we're not worthy recipients. We've sinned against him. And we continue to do so. And yet Christ would die for us. We finish verse 16. We read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Again, whoever believes. Jesus talking to Nicodemus saying, just like those when they raised up that serpent, Moses raised it up, those who trusted and believed and looked to it, they were saved. And the same way those who will believe in the Christ, who will turn to him to trust in him, they will be saved. It's not based upon our performance. It's not based on how good we've become. It's based upon Christ. Just like those who were afflicted when Moses raised up the serpent, they didn't do anything to save themselves but to look in obedience, to look to the bronze serpent that was raised. Church, all we're to do is to look to Christ, to look upon Him, to believe. We're going to unpack what that means, to believe. But the Scriptures say it's just belief on how we receive this gift of salvation. Jesus says, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What does that mean? What does that mean will not perish? It means we'll suffer utter destruction. They'll never be lost again. Jesus said in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Church, that means assurance. I don't have to have wishful thinking that I just hope and wishful thinking that I'll be okay. But I can trust in the words of Christ. That He says, I love you and I demonstrated my love to you by dying for you. And that you are mine. And that you will not perish. But you will have everlasting life. We read again in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, that He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world, Jews, Gentiles alike, that when Jesus died, He paid the full penalty for our sins. That He satisfied the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to stand before God and receive the judgment that was rightly due to us. I can't think of a greater love. There's no love that compares. The very next verse connected to it, we see the word for again in John 3.17. It starts again, for. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Stop there. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn us. He came in the world to demonstrate amazing love to us. We read in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He didn't come to condemn he came to seek and save, to demonstrate love. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul would write, of whom I am the foremost. For those of you that have walked with Jesus for some time, you'll know the more you walk with Jesus, the more you realize just how much you need His grace. When he first draws you out of darkness, you think, oh, I'm not that bad. I'm not bad as all these other people. But the more you walk in the light with Christ, the more you realize how much we need His grace. Grace upon grace. And that's what 
Paul the Apostle understood. And that's why he would say, of whom I am foremost. His love reaches out to all sinners. Some people think, Pastor, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the way I've sinned. You don't know the way I've rebelled against God. Well, the one who just wrote that verse, that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, he was going house to house and pulling out Christians, having them beaten and imprisoned, voting to have them killed. He's rebelled against God. And yet he received the same grace that we receive. There has never been, nor will there ever be, a greater love than God's love towards us. I'll say that again. There will never be, and there never, there never has been, nor will there ever be, a greater love than God's love. People search for love all the time, and there's plenty of country songs sung about it. Looking for love in all the wrong places. But to look up. But God, He is love. When we look at these verses, the loved are you. The loved are us. We are the loved. That God would so love us, He would send Christ to die in our place. But then there's point number two in our text this morning. There's also the condemned. Read with me verse 18. In point number two, the condemned Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Let's start with the first part of that. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ this morning? A brother or sister in Christ this morning? For us as believers, there is no longer any condemnation. We read this in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when Christ returns or we stand before Him, we don't have to shrink back and be in fear, but we can rejoice. We can be excited at His coming. We'd be excited to stand before Him. Why? Because we're under grace. And as we find out, it's grace upon grace that we are so in need of. We're no longer being crushed by the law. We're no longer being judged by the law. Christ has fulfilled that for us. We now live through Him. Christ is the one who lived a sinless life. He is the one that rose from the dead and conquered sin and death. And He is the one who has then imputed, given us His righteousness. That we now can be clothed in the righteousness of God. Tell you what, if we go through this slowly enough, it is so much. It's just like, really? How, how can that be? There's a song, Amazing Love. How can it be that you, my king, would die for me? It's absolutely amazing. But we as believers are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We're no longer condemned. We are in Christ. John 5.24 says, Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life, to which we say, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We've passed from death to life. There's a second part of verse 18. If we look back in our text this morning, whoever believes in him is not condemned. We as believers, Hallelujah. But whoever does not believe in him, well, they're condemned already because they haven't believed in the name of the only Son of God. Notice he says they're already condemned. 
they have rejected the only name under heaven that is given by which we must be saved. We read that in Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Christ is the only way. And the problem for them is that they, as well as us, we're all sinners. But the fortunate part for us who are believers, we're now in Christ. There's no longer any condemnation for us. We have received the love of God. But for those who would reject it, who would continue to willfully sin against the holy God and continue in rebellion, there's condemnation. It already exists. Some people say, well, how could a loving God, how could a loving God send anyone to hell? Anybody heard that question before? How could a loving God? Well, God can't separate his character. God is love, but God is also perfectly just. And the Bible says he can know by no means clear the guilty. So how do he satisfy that? By sending his son, who would die in our place. That he would satisfy his full wrath by pouring it out upon his son. So his justice is met, and his love is met also by sending his son. So the question is, how could God send someone to hell? But how could God send his son to die in our place? Oh, what an amazing love. How could God send an innocent one in our place to die in our place because of amazing love? Because his justice and love met on the cross. Satisfying both the character of love and justice. But sadly, as we read in verse 18, not all will receive the gift of salvation. They just spent time with a family member going to demonstrate the love of God and to communicate that, but sadly, openly, willfully rejecting the love of God. And there will be those who will continue to reject. And the scriptures say they are already condemned. Many will reject Christ. And the scriptures say they stand condemned. They're storing up for themselves the wrath of God that will be poured out upon them on the day of judgment. Church, we realize there is no party in hell. Some who rebel against God say, man, I'm just going to party in hell. There is no party there. It is described as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of constant pain and agony, a place that we all should fear and flee from, not a place that we would say, oh, I'm going to party there. There's no party. If there was any other way or if hell wasn't that bad, Christ would not have to die in our behalf. If I can go to hell and it's just a party, well, let's go. But that's not the case. For those who will not trust in Christ as taking the penalty for their sin, they're going to bear their own penalty. And not for a moment, but forever. It's absurdity. The presentation of the good news of God's love, it offers only two options. Either to believe or to perish. To believe or to perish. And those who refuse to believe are the condemned. They stand condemned already. They've sinned. They've fallen short of the glory of God. They're storing up the wrath of God. However, we see in verse 18, whoever believes. Now, it doesn't mean when Christ died for the world that it's universal salvation for everybody. 
that everybody's now saved, but it's whoever believes. Well, what does that mean to believe? We know in the book of James it says, even the demons believe and they tremble. So what does it mean to believe? Look with me at just a handful of verses later in John chapter 3. In verse 36, John 3, 36. Whoever believes, there's that word, in the Son has eternal life. Got it? We're good? But keep reading. There's a semicolon. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So my question to you reading that verse, what does it mean to believe? There's evidence. There's fruit. If you were with us when we went through the book of James together, there's got to be evidence of salvation. If the gospel hasn't changed you, most likely it hasn't saved you. There should be transformation. If your heart has been regenerated, if you've been given a new heart, if God's love has been poured into your heart, as Romans 5, 5 says, there should be evidence. And we see part of that is obedience. That now there's a desire to chase after God, to please God, to honor God. But for those who have no transformation, those who truly, in this context of speaking of Nicodemus, those who haven't been born again, we read the wrath of God remains on them. So it's not a profession orally that I believe. It's whether or not they truly have been born again. That they have been regenerated. That there's a heart that's been given that they now chase after God. And as I told you before, even as Christians, we still stumble. We still fall. But God sustains us. He gets us back up and allows us to continue on. To help us to persevere. To endure. The condemned are those who reject the free gift of salvation. Those who continue to want to do it their way, who think that perhaps they could do enough good to be able to get into heaven, who think I haven't been that bad and want to compare themselves to everyone else, those are who stand condemned. And finally, we read in verses 19 through 21, the judgment. Point number three, the judgment. Starting in the first two verses there, starting in 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. You guys get the visual there? You turn down complete darkness in here and you can do whatever you want. No one's seeing you. No one knows what's going on. But you turn the lights on now we see everything. Everything's out in the open. Now let me ask you this real quick, and I know you know the answer. It's rhetorical. But do you think God doesn't see what's in the dark? Of course he does. But here Christ comes on, the true light we read in chapter 1. He is the light of the world. And what is he going to do? He's going to illuminate everything around him. And those who love the dark are going to be like cockroaches, and they're going to scatter when the light comes. You guys experience cockroaches? Walk in, flip the lights on, and they flee. They run. Some of you experience that in your own family, that you now being a Christian, having a regenerated heart, go in as the light, and everybody flees. They don't want to interact. They don't want to talk. They don't want to invite you to anything, because now the light exposes the darkness. Or they say, oh, I'm sorry, pardon my French, when they use a swear word, even though it's not French. All of a sudden, they feel convicted because of the light. 
Again, looking at verses 19 and 20, the judgment has come in, the light has come, people love darkness rather than light. Jesus says you will know them by their fruit. There's evidence. You'll know. Ephesians 5.13 says, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Why do you think people hate Christ? Because of conviction. Because the reality, they might be doing something wrong. And they don't want to admit to that. They want to live their own way and be in that ignorance and freedom of their mind to say, I can do what I want because God doesn't exist. They become futile in their thinking. Romans 1.18 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, listen, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They want to live lawlessly. They want to pursue evil. And because of that, they say God doesn't exist. And the Bible says the fool says in his heart that there is no God. They become foolish. But you'll know them by their fruits. 1 John chapter 3, verses 9-10 through 10 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Stop there, Christian, because I don't want you to feel condemned. We just read that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So there's something very important when we start in John, in 1 John chapter 3. No one born of God makes a practice. Some of your translation just says, no one born of God sins. We know that's not true. Because chapter 2 of 1 John says, these things I have written that you may not sin, but if you do sin, know that you have an advocate, Jesus Christ. Here we see it's a practice of sin, which means you continue on and think it's no big deal. It's no big deal for you to continue to sin against God. Listen, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. Again, the same practice of sin. They cannot keep up in it, because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now stop there real quick. Because we're talking about the judgment, the light has come into the world. Those who love darkness hated the light. But as he transitions in the next verse, we're going to see, but those who have come to the light, they come before God. There's no fear. Let me ask you this. If Christ was to return right now, would you be excited or would you be a little scared? And I'm not talking scared in the sense that that would just be like an amazing thing, but like, Oh no, like being caught with your hand in the cookie jar, scared? Would there be that kind of fear? Would there be the uncertainty of, I don't know how he's going to respond to me kind of fear? Because scripture makes it very clear, we should have an assurance. We have a great hope that we don't have to stand in fear. But we have to know that there's been a miracle inside. That as we see in 1 John chapter 3, there's been a transformation. That there's now fruit in my life that I am His. Not because every day I make a checklist of I have to be better than yesterday, but because there's a Spirit of God in me that now I desire to walk in and live by and to obey. But it's not a checklist. It's a relationship with the living God of the universe. Look at me in the last verse of our text this morning. Verse 21. Whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Completely opposite of those who are in darkness. They don't want to come to the light. They love darkness and don't want to be exposed. 
But those who are His, those who believe will come to the light and they will be judged rightly before God. You know, there's a prayer that we read in Psalms. David cries out to God in Psalm 139. Read this with transparency before God. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. David cries out to God and says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there's any grievous or any wicked way in me, and leave me in the way everlasting. Do you know what he was doing? He was coming to the light. He wasn't afraid of the answer. He was looking for it. He was looking to grow in holiness, to walk in a way that would please God. And he would come to the light and say, God, search me and know me. Reveal any wicked way in me that I might walk rightly before you. Those are those who have experienced the love of God, who have been transformed, who aren't afraid of the light. They're not afraid of God's word. They're not afraid of God's people coming together. There are those who are His. We read something amazing about the grace of God in Titus chapter 2. For those of you taking notes, I promise I won't throw too much more at you. Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. Stop there. I'm going to ask you, do you know the grace of God? Have you received the grace of God in your life? Have you responded to the grace of God that's been poured out? Because here is what happens when you respond to the grace of God. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. It brings salvation for all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Wait, stop. What is training us to do that? God's grace. That he pours out grace upon grace. That his spirit that dwells within us is teaching us to walk rightly before him. It's not a checklist or it's not a, a little list that I have to beat myself if I do wrong. It's God's spirit that comes within us and teaches us to renounce ungodliness. To renounce worldly passions. To live self-controlled. To live upright. To live a godly life in this present age. All while living expectantly for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Have you been touched by God's amazing love? Have you received his grace, his abundance of love? This is what we're talking about. That in response to that, this is what flows out of us. It's a response to God that we've been touched by His love. The reason that we love is because He first loved us. He first loved us. God's love, His grace, continues to transform us more and more into the image of Christ as we abide in Him. And just like the writer of this gospel, do you guys know what John is referred to as? John, the Apostle John, a son of thunder. And yet later it would be known as the disciple of love. Those are quite different. He was transformed by God's amazing love. And this morning, if you have been transformed by God's amazing love, praise Him. Glory in Him. Allow His Spirit to continue to shine through you 
and allow his love to flow through you and let be the recipient of others. Not to those who you think are deserving, because we're not the deserving, but to all. Let God's love flow. Perhaps this morning you have yet to experience God's amazing love. You have yet to repent and to fully trust in Jesus. You're still trying to do it on your own, thinking, man, if I could just get better one day at a time, maybe God will accept me. You can't do it that way. If you could have done it that way, then Christ died in vain. He is the only way. He's the only way. He's the truth. He's the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. He's demonstrated His amazing love for you, that while you were yet sinning against Him, Christ would die in your place. There is no greater love than that. No greater love. To reject His love gift is to reject the only hope of escaping the penalty of your sins. Can't earn or deserve, can't earn or deserve heaven. It's got to be what Christ has done. Church, this morning, may we rejoice in God's amazing love. May we allow His love and His grace to continue to draw us closer and closer to Him, to be more like Him. But may it be that we are a man and a woman in this place that go and demonstrate God's love to others. May there no longer be the excuses, I don't know what love is. I didn't have somebody in a home that demonstrated love to me. We have a God who has demonstrated perfect love to us. An amazing love. And may we go be vessels and share that love with others. Let's pray. Father, truly, we could spend many, many Sundays looking at the one verse of John 3.16. And God, as we have surfaced over it, your amazing love still shines through. Father, we are thankful recipients of your grace, of your love. Father, maybe people will slow down and allow your grace to continue to transform us, to be in awe of your goodness, to be in awe of how great your love is, how infinite your love is. Father, we pray that as we allow your love to flow in us and through us to one another, that you would be glorified. And Father, if there be anyone in this place this morning who has not been on the recipient end of your amazing love, who has not responded in in repentance and faith, that today would be the day that you draw them to yourself. That today would be the day they have insurance of heaven. There's no longer wishful thinking that they would know that they know that that you would do a transformation within them. We pray these things in Jesus' name.